Please stand for a reading of the word from 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, come closer to me. And all the people came closer to him. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to contain two measures of seed. Next, he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time, so that the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, the prophet Elijah came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. The word of the Lord. Please. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here with us, whether you're here in the room or with us online. Uh, it's good to have you with us. We're in a series uh, on called Reenchantment. It's kind of rediscovering how God is working in the world, particularly when we live in an era and a time uh, of, of a secular age, a time that doesn't really look for the, the power of God, instead looks towards other things. We began this series talking about the story of Moses and the burning bush. And what's key we learned in that story is, is that we have to kind of have awareness on the edge of our vision. Because when God acts, sometimes it's, it's on the periphery, and if we're not paying attention, we're going to miss it. And so we need to not only pay attention, but also have the courage to do what Moses did. When he saw something out of the corner of his eye, he saw the burning bush, and he thought to himself, I'm going to turn aside. I'm going to go investigate that. I'm going to pay attention. And then last week, we told the story about Thomas. We know him as Doubting Thomas, who, who had a struggle to believe that, that Jesus had written, risen. And it, we talked about the reality that all of us live with kind of a shadow of doubt on the edge of our faith. Some of us live with a crack that runs right through the middle of our faith, and we call that doubt. But that's normal in the world we live in. In fact, it's, also, it's actually a benefit. Because what that means is not that just that the faithful have edges of doubt in their understanding, but those who are secular, agnostic, atheist, that means that they have moments of transcendence in their life. And so we talked about ways that we can kind of bring that out. Tell a border story. Go to the edge of your world and theirs and tell a story that might bring them over the border. It can't be over the top and it can't be boring. It just has to be the right level of story told at the right place at the right time that invites that person to say, yeah, you know, 
Something strange happened to me one time, too. And so the first week, I I asked you to pay attention to the work of God. Last week, I asked you to tell that border story, to try it out. And I got got so many texts this week from people that said, hey, in our small group, we we told border stories. Or I was out at a a campfire with friends and coworkers, and we began to tell those stories. And that was really encouraging to me because what that says is this church has stories to tell. And, And small group is a great place to practice, but that's not where I want that to go. I want you to tell a border story to someone that that doesn't believe, that hasn't been to church in a long, long time. I was thinking this week, and I I really hope they're not watching because I'm about to talk to them, about uh, my my soccer team that one of my my boys plays in. And and you'd think in a city like Abilene with a bunch of families that are willing to play soccer together on the rec rec league at the YMCA, all those people are going to have some sort of church home, but they don't. And it's so weird. I mean... The edge of the the side of a soccer field where where five year olds are playing is not the best place to tell border stories. But I'm trying to find a way. I'm trying to think of a way to begin asking them questions that cause them questions. And so I hope you had a chance to tell a border story. And if you didn't, try it again. But I'm going to give you something at the end of the sermon that I also want you to try this week. We talked about last week that you know why doesn't God just put a blinking sign? Why doesn't God just put a blinking sign on the moon? I am here for the whole world to see. Why don't, why don't we see that? I mean, does re-enchantment really even matter? Now, let me be clear. I'm not trying to convince you that you ought to believe in, in, in the fae or pixies or leprechauns. I'm not trying to convince you that ogres or vampires or werewolves are actually out in the woods trying to get you. I'm not trying to convince you that wizards are real, although that would be really cool. What I'm trying to tell you is help you name the thing that's in you. It's what Richard Beck in his book calls the ache. That one of the, one of the phenomenon that happens as we live in a disenchanted world is that we feel a longing inside of us, an ache for something more. And I got a chance to sit down with him and talk this week about, let's, I want to understand that ache. I want to know it. I want to, to lean into understanding what that is. And so I asked the question, is, is, is the ache, that feeling that we feel that there's something beyond what we're experiencing, is, is that unique to a disenchanted age? Is that because we're so secular? And, and, and Richard responded with, well, no. I mean, Augustine, the first major theologian in, in Christian history, said, our souls will not rest until they rest in you. Whether you articulate that feeling as, as a longing or a wandering or an ache, it kind of exists throughout time. And so I followed up with the question, so if this isn't unique to a disenchanted world that we're trying to re-enchant or see the power of God in to pay attention, does it matter? I mean, if, if God was more present, if God was louder, if, or if we paid better attention, would it make any difference? If God put a blinking sign on the moon, I am here, would it change things? Maybe. 
I find it fascinating that uh, business has been stripping away Christian disciplines and using the core of it for their, their own use. They're kind of taking anything that has to do with Jesus away and finding valuable. For instance, you know, Christian spiritual meditation. They'll, they'll take everything that's spiritual off of that. They call it mindfulness, and they'll sell it to CEOs for 500K a session, which is brilliant, right? And, and CEOs will say, if I engage in mindfulness, if I do the practices, which sound exactly like what Christian monks have been doing for the last uh, 1,700 years, if I, if I do those things, I find there are changes in my life. And so people have asked them, well, what are the changes? Has it made a huge difference? And some say yes, and some say no, but most say it makes me about 10% happier. If it happened, if God made himself real, would it matter? Well, I want to tell you today about the one time when God did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for today. And Father, I am mindful of, of Judy Thomas and all of the other saints who have gone on before us, who have been faithful to you in the way that they lived, in the things that they said, the way they shared their time and their talent and their treasure. And Father, I, I imagine that line of saints that goes back generation to generation to generation all the way back to the, uh, the disciples and to Jesus. Lives that have been lived in faithfulness and great times and hard times and times of want and times of plenty. And so, Father, let us be faithful. Let us be faithful to find ourselves as part of that unbroken chain as we pass our faith on to those who will follow us. And in this moment, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So I want to tell you, this is my favorite story, one of my favorite stories in, in the Old Testament. It's the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. Because, see, the people said that, that Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it, Baal can make the crops grow. The people said that Baal will make the babies grow. The people said if you want to get rich, then you need to sacrifice to Baal because he's the one that can make it happen for you. But Elijah said that Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Elijah said that Yahweh was the true God and that trusting in Baal would give you, to give you things was bad. Some people believed that Baal was God. Other people believed Yahweh was God. Some people believed they were both were God. And still others thought nobody was God, or at least it didn't really make a difference. And so Elijah sets up a contest. And the stakes are high. The stakes are unbelievably high. This is the future of Israel and Elijah's life on the line. And there's so much to say about this story. I, I can't get into it today because we don't have the time. So I'm going to come back. We're going to do more on this story another time. But, but I love what happens in this story. Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal as they try to summon their God. There's the, the significance of those 12 stones for the 12 tribes and the 12 cisterns of water in the time of a drought. And there's the fire that comes at night. It's the deliverance of God, and it reminds us very much of the Exodus when God used a pillar of fire to guide his people out of uh, the, the wasteland into the promised land. 
And then there's that moment. That moment when the fire consumes the offering and burns the stones and burns the ground and licks up all the water. This moment of elation for Elijah. A moment when the prophets of Baal are finally proven for the charlatans that they are. And then nothing. Because then afterwards, some people believe that Yahweh was God. Some people believe Baal was God. Some people believed both were God, and some people didn't really see the point. But because of the contest, King Ahab and Jezebel in particular are not convinced Yahweh was God. In fact, they were so angry that Jezebel said she was going to kill Elijah. He was going to die if he lost. Now he's going to die because God won. And so Elijah runs. He runs from Carmel to Jezreel Valley. He goes, he goes from the, the top of northern Israel to the bottom of Judah. And on the, law, on the way, Elijah is kind of throwing off parts of his prophetic life like a trail of clothes. He leaves his servant in Beersheba. He leaves his home in Israel. Uh, he leaves the settled land entirely for the wilderness where he is completely alone. And he lays down under a broom tree. And at last, he abandons his prophetic call and utters one word, enough. And then he commands God, take my life. Broom trees are significant, but not really significant in the sense you might think. They're significant in scripture. It's, 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 they're barely trees. They're nothing like the majestic mesquite trees of West Texas. Which I had a friend tell me this week that uh, in trying to define the, the climate of West Texas, uh, that the best thing to call it is live oak savanna, which really gives it a great new perspective. I like that lens way better than West Texas. Um, broom trees are a little more like scrub bushes. And they're they're barely enough shade to make the mid midday heat bearable. Staying under a broom tree drops it like 5 or 10 degrees, and they're barely big enough for one person to lie beneath. But they, they show up all over Scripture. Job describes the broom tree as a place of desolation, of ruin, and abandonment. The psalmist connects them with the mourning and distress, but but most significantly, Genesis describes a story where a young mother is, is forced away from her home uh, into the wilderness. And after the meager water and fruit, food run out, she places her son under a broom tree to die. And then she sits down and wept. But God meets us in our desolation. God meets us in our mourning and distress. And like Hagar and her son Ishmael, God met Elijah under a broom tree. Barbara Brown Taylor says, maybe it was the bloody car contest on Mount Carmel. Sometimes when you get exactly what you want, there can be this terrible vacuum afterwards. All the energy that helps you reach your goal suddenly deserts you and you don't have a clue what you're supposed to do next. You felt so strong up there on the mountain, but now you don't know if your knees will hold you on the way back down. Or maybe it was just exhaustion, Taylor supposes. 
one major thing happening right after the next and no time of rest in between. First, the prophets of Baal, then Jezebel, then the flight in the wilderness without anything to eat or drink. And separate those things by a week or so, and they might be doable, but one right on top of the other was like being in a war. Or maybe, Taylor wonders, Elijah was just tired of being a prophet. Thank you for this call, Lord. I fully recognize the privilege of serving you, but the truth is I'm just about called out right now. With all due respect, I quit. And I think you may have experienced this at some point in your life. I think you might have experienced the elation of that moment when you kind of reach the, the peak of something in your world. And this may be the highest peak you ever reached or you don't know because your future is not told yet. Maybe you were prom king one year and everybody looked at you. You got to wear the hat. Maybe you got to give a speech for uh, your profession, or maybe you won a big award. Maybe you did something and you got recognized, and it was really a big deal. And then a few days pass, and you kind of wonder what happened. So God feeds Elijah. He sends two messengers with food and water out into the nothing and gives Elijah time to rest. And Elijah gets up and goes to the cave. And God asks, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing in this cave, Elijah? Or maybe God means, What are you doing with this prophetic call I gave you? Elijah, or even the deeper existential question, what are you doing with your life, Elijah? And it's not in the fire, and it's not in the earthquake, it's not in the storm, but it's in the quiet. And Elijah recognizes the presence of God, covers his face. And comes to the edge of the cave. Which do you think is the bigger moment in Elijah's life? Which is the one you think he might tell when he's telling a border story to his grandkids? Because the reality, there's presence of altars all over this story. There's, there's literal altars at Mount Carmel. There's there's an altar at the broom tree. There's an altar at the cave in Horeb. There are altars everywhere in this story. And where are those holy spaces in your life? I'm not just talking about altars that archaeologists can, can dig up and, and reassemble. That's not what I mean. I mean it's like that place that Jacob experiences. You might remember the story that Jacob has a dream. He puts his head on a rock. He's on the run from his brother who's trying to kill him. And in that moment, the dream, he sees angels going up and down from heaven. They're doing the business of God. They're doing the work of God. And, he, and Jacob wakes up and he realizes, I had no idea where I was. And he names the place Bethel, the house of God. Surely God was here and I had no idea. And he makes an altar. If we had the eyes to see, we could not walk ten feet without bruising our shins on the altars built for God. 
I know that's true because I've heard it in this church. I've heard it in, in, in this community. I, I, it was before COVID, so I don't know exactly when it was. It doesn't really matter anyway. It's just pre-COVID. That's all it is. But we were, we were telling stories here about, about times where we encountered God. And I had this great story in my mind. I was going to be the last one that tells a story connected to the sermon. You know how that goes. And I was going to tell a story about when I was a freshman in uh, college, and I was at ACU, and I was terribly alone. I was so lonely because I had been separated from everything I knew. Nobody knew me at ACU. Nobody had grown up with me. Nobody had, had seen me the first time I came to church with my parents. Nobody had been my friend since the third and fourth grade. Nobody had known all the cool stuff that we had done in high school or the dumb stuff that we had done in high school. Nobody knew that. I was completely unknown, and it made me terribly lonely. And I wanted to tell that story because I wanted to tell about sitting at the moment. I was on the edge of the baby business building, staring out into Judge Ely and uh, praying to God, please give me one person that knows me here. And I couldn't tell you that story because a student at ACU told the exact same story of walking back and forth, back and forth between maybe and the JMC building. It's just kind of like a, a sewage pipe there or a water drain area. And he just walked back and forth asking God for the exact same thing. And I have no doubt in my mind that if we had the eyes to see and you walked in between maybe and the JMC building, what you would see there is an altar. And I have no doubt if we had the eyes to see, if we went to the edge of the maybe building and we looked out on the spot where I was sitting, you would have seen a pillar of fire licking up the water of loneliness. I have no doubt if we had the eyes to see, we could not walk 10 feet without bruising our shins on the altars that have been erected to God in this place. I don't know if Elijah succeeded or failed in the contest. But I do know that God showed up for him every step of the way. Fast forward in history just a little bit. Another man is going to have a contest about God. Jesus will say he is God. And Jesus will show he is God. And Jesus is going to set up a contest against his enemies. If I come back from the dead, if I am who I say I am. And for three days, the forces of evil and death roiled and churned, celebrating a victory. But when the sun broke for the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He is who he says he is. And for the last 2,000 years, men and women and girls and boys have said, I believe you, and I want to be on the side of Jesus. But there are still those that don't think that Jesus is God. There are some that think that he is one of many gods. And there are still others who think that there aren't any gods at all, or at least it doesn't really matter. But I think because you've taken the time to be in this room, I think because you've taken the time to dedicate your time and your talent and your treasure, there was a moment in your life when you decided. You decided that Jesus is the best way, and I don't know what the future holds. It may be amazing. It may be terrible. I'm going to give that future 
for that cause. Because more than anything else in the world, I want to be on the side of Jesus. I think you have that story. And so the first week, I ask you to pay attention. See what's on the edge of your vision, your periphery, to see what God does. And last week, I asked you to tell that story that's just enough to get somebody else to tell their story, their moment of transcendence. But this week, what I want you to do is to write down the why. Why did you choose to be on God's side? Whatever the reason, whether you think it's profound or simple, whether you think it's amazing or boring, it does not matter. Write down the reason why. And see what happens when we trust God with our future. Will you please stand for our benediction? The power of God that brought Jesus from the dead is the power of God that lives in you. It is the power of God that will change the world. And it is in the moments of your faithfulness that God wants to work most clearly. And so this week, may you be filled with the Spirit. May you see the action of God, and may you have the courage to speak the truth. Go in peace.